The Guardian. Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. On a spring afternoon in 19-something, Gustav Aschenbach, or von Aschenbach, as he had officially been known since his 50th birthday, set out from his apartment in Munich. The morning's writing had overstimulated him, and he needed clarity. As with many German intellectuals of the early 20th century, his mind had been feasting on the classicism of his surroundings when he came across a displeasing red-haired man. A strange emotion stirred within him, an emotion he later identified as a desire to travel. He had been too preoccupied with the duties imposed on him by the collective European psyche. He needed an impromptu interlude. A dolce fa niente. The author of the massive prose epic about the life of Frederick of Prussia, the creator of a study in objection, Aschenbach had first made a name for himself at little more than school age, and his reputation had grown steadily ever since. His physical frailty, combined with an overarching self-regard, meant he had few friends, and he had scarcely noticed when his wife had died some years earlier. He slept twelve hours each day, exhausted by the hard labour of twenty minutes writing and the over-refinement of his existence. Yet Aschenbach did not complain, accepting that his Teutonic duty was to sublimate his self in an ecstasy of the will to art, beauty and capital letters. He took the overnight train to Trieste and thence headed for the island of Pola. The rain and provincialism soon filled this Apollonian artist with vexation. His destination had been mischosen, and he booked his passage to Venice. From the seclusion of his first-class quarters, he gazed down at the hoipoloi before recoiling in distaste at the sight of a lamentably dandified old man, his cheeks carmine with rouge and asti. Venice was not enshrined in sun when the ferry docked, a disturbing insult to his aesthetics, and Aschenbach's mood was not improved when a contumacious, red-haired gondolier imposed his services on him. Quite naturally, his thoughts turned to death. For what man does not think of death at such a moment? He disembarked at the Hotel des Bains on the Lido and was reassured to hear the sounds of all the major world languages and Polish. As he was waiting for dinner, he spotted three austere, expressionless girls with their extremely beautiful 14-year-old brother. He went to sleep in a transport of delight and entered a dreamland where he was a great deal more active than he ever was awake. The smell of the lagoon was vexatious, and Aschenbach was again concerned his asceticism might be compromised. He dressed for breakfast and espied the young boy in the dining room. Well, my little Phaeacian, with the head of Eros, Aschenbach said to himself, as would any man of letters overwhelmed by the liquid beauty of Achilleus. 
He went to the sea to watch the bacchanalia of the simple peasants and escape the complexity of phenomena. Yet when the boy, whom he learned was called Tadzio, once more appeared, romping with the others, he was transfixed again. Tut, tut, Critobulus, he thought, in a manner that his superego confused with paternal fondness, yet which his turbulent id identified with pederasty albeit a very high-minded, noble pederasty. He took a walk around the piazza, and the sickening stench that pervaded the air made him resolve to leave. He sent his luggage ahead, desirous to spend his last few hours in Venice with his Narcissus. Adieu, Tadzio, he said to no one but himself. May God bless you, even though you are probably going to die young. Real grief rent his heart, how he longed to turn back. What joy, what rapture, what exclamation marks. His trunk had been sent on to Como by mistake. There was nothing for it but to return to his hotel. Exhausted by the half-hour journey, Aschenbach spent the following week reclining in a chair, enjoying Oceanus' calming breeze and watching Tadzio's translucent godlike physique. O Hyacinthus, O Phaedrus, he said, how I desire to produce prose of limpid sensuousness to match your beauty. As the days slipped by, Aschenbach dared to hope for a reciprocity of relationship, and once he smiled and mouthed a dignified, I love you, to the boy's retreating figure. In the fourth week, Aschenberg heard rumours there was a sickness in the city, yet he could not bring himself to leave. He followed Tadzio more openly, leaning against his bedroom door, enjoying the cities and his own guilty secrets and the ancient nobility of his debasement. As the stench of gastric juices continued to fill the air, he learned there was a cholera epidemic, but still he could not bring himself to tell Tadzio's mother. The consciousness of his complicity intoxicated him and his dreams became full of leaden Freudian archetypes of Saturnalia. He allowed the barber to colour his hair and cheeks and to paint his lips cherry red, the mirror image of the satyr who had so offended his delicate asceticism on the ferry. Apollo had made way for Dionysus. He revelled in his sensuousness, becoming ever more reckless in his pursuit of Phaedrus. He overheard Tadzio's mother say they were leaving, and he started to feel unwell. He went to the beach and watched Tadzio wrestle with a friend. Was he beckoning him? He made to rise from his chair, but collapsed, crushed by the weight of the symbolism. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.